0: Welcome to Experiences of Insight. On today's episode, we are joined by Dan Levy from Adelaide, Australia. Dan is a human-centered design expert, sprint facilitator and coach, advisor and consultant, and principal at More Space for Life. On this episode, Dan shares with us some insights on being an entrepreneur, his journey as a creative, and discusses some of his passions and interests outside of work. We are very thankful and appreciative to have spoken with Dan, and without further ado, we present
1: Dan Levy.
2: Can you hear us, Mr. Dan? Not yet. Yeah, now I can hear you. Hello, hello, hello. Hey. Hey, Hey, welcome to my world. (laughs) It's a good world. I'm actually on vacation, so I I
1: created this uh, situation behind me.
3: Oh, okay. I I can't lift my computer up because it's pretty temperamental. It keeps dying, so I'm in a bit of a, oh gosh, hold on a sec, let's try something here. That's better. Yeah, I'm in a bit of a MacBook uh, catastrophe at the moment or situation, however you want to define it. It's yeah. lovely to meet you, Lee. Lovely to meet you, David. Absolutely. Yes. You too, Dan. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, I was uh, oh I was
2: kind
1: of thrown off with um the fact that you're from London and not from Australia. So I was I was trying to really <laughs> triangulate in on your sense of humor, this, the origin point of that. I'm still, you know, you still have me on, on it.
3: Okay. Well, um yeah, so that's that's my little kind of thing. It's kind of funny when I talk and uh, People speak to me for the first time, they're expecting "get G'day, mate. But instead they get, all right, mate, how are you? And it just completely just, yeah, I love the looks. I get back. Mm. I, I,
0: I also had a different uh, couple of initial questions that I wanted to ask you that were predicated on you either being from Adelaide or from uh, southern Australia. And uh, when you mentioned that piece about London, it... Uh, I just caught it a couple of minutes ago and I'm like, okay, we're going to freestyle this a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I, I have a lot of friends that grew up in different parts of the Commonwealth. So I have a great appreciation for how, um, you know, I think a lot of time, times us as Americans, we don't really, you know, a, we just don't know a lot and we're just dumb generally or whatever, or we don't have a time or an understanding, or maybe that much of a concentration early on in our experience and our learning where we don't, we're not as aware as most of the other countries out there. And, um, through my friends and over the years, I, like I said, developed a big respect for the Commonwealth and people's travels and journeys. So
3: have you done much traveling yourself, David?
0: I have. Yeah. Um, definitely. I haven't, I grew up in Southern California and, um, I came to school when I was 17 and uh on the east coast and if you've been to the states you know how vast that is so it's a pretty big jump and yeah and i I would imagine like australia as well when you talk about going from adelaide to other parts you know there's a lot of different cultures and nuance and you know regardless um you know, you get an opportunity to learn and understand different where different people are coming from, and it's atypical. To in my example, um, you know, where I grew up was a lot different than where I am now and where I went to school. So it was, it was a really nice experience. Um,
3: I'm yeah. loving. I'm trying to work out the background. Sorry, David. I, I, I get what, like, I, what's all those pictures in the background? What's going on?
0: Oh, that? that's. Um, let's see if I can bring that in a little bit closer. It's actually.
2: On, one second these are all Andy Warhol polaroids. Wow so you're in New York
3: yeah? Yes. And, and and did you like the way I totally avoided going deeper into what you just said in regards to um, your kind of uh, your perception of Americans and that I've, I've, I've intentionally sidestepped any kind of political banter that would i uh, yeah. uh, alienate anybody. I try and stay as carbon neutral with that stuff as I, I as I'm
0: possibly. brutally I'm I'm brutally honest about my limitations and uh I let it hang out there and uh yeah. but unfortunately, you know, uh yeah the current state of things, a lot of things have been said and communicated at the you know, either through politics or uh in the news or press. And uh it definitely, let's just say uh, we're in an you know, it's been painting painting us in a really bad picture the past couple of years.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm just to my uh, sound. These are my wife's headphones. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's it's hard. I mean, there's a there's a lot of nasty stuff going on in the world at the moment, and I've got to be honest with you. Being a Londoner, being an expat, I'm I like being in. I was having this conversation this morning. I can be, I feel it's nice to be in the bubble of Adelaide as much as it isn't nice to be in the bubble of Adelaide in Australia. Like we, I've got to be careful what I say here, but. Um, no, it's fine. We are, oh, okay. So I might pee off the people in Australia. You know what, <laughs> We're so far. Oh. I, I just view going. this
0: as kind of like the freestyle jam. And if you say something, you know. I I probably will be editing the piece out about uh, us saying that, you know, generally the perception of us as Americans is that, you know, if I just want to point to one thing, I mean, most people speak multiple languages
3: as an example, just the fact, and here in the States, that's very uncommon. So I I think for us, uh, just a quick, because I'm I'm messing around with my speaker, can you actually hear me? You're picking me up. I'm picking you up. Perfect. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, like I think it's sometimes it's out of necessity, especially in the UK and Europe, and and UK is pretty bad. Um, your typical, um, you know, people that are born and bred in the UK, they they stay very localised. I'm sure many people are like that that they don't move out their village. You, you know, be, growing up being East London, I was really lucky that um, it was such a, a it was such a melting pot. It was so there was such a diversity of cultures. And I mean, you're spot on with the nuances of the different parts of Australia. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of the diversity of culture, mm-hmm. I mean, especially it's, it's not so prevalent here. And it's something that kind of you know does does my head in a little bit with my kids because you it, know it's very um, generic <laughs> to, to put it very bland it can be. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm I'm very used to that being one of the only white kids in class and things like that and just being so exposed to different cultures and that. And I loved it. I just love learning. And just like you say, I just get really into it. And that, you know, that was part of my journey that before I got to Australia, going through all Asia and just experience new and different things. And I, think, I think that's so important. And, uh, yeah. you know, so just having that sense of perspective and being able to kind of, kind of, just teach my kids that as well.
0: Let me let me ask you a question and um i'm I'm just a heads up i'm I'm liking the way this is going, and it' hits on a couple of our first kind of points that we generally try to discuss with our guests you know tell us a little bit Dan, about your background. you mentioned you're from east london you know who's your who's your football side you know uh, uh, is it west Ham is it you know um, no uh, you know is it q p r you know who who exactly is it and um you know tell us about a little bit about your what it was like being a child and growing up in East London and some of the influences that you could look back upon at an early age.
3: Is football more sensitive than politics? Or is
2: it football politics or, yeah. Well, I'll give you a clue. My name's Dan Levy and the club I follow. I'm the
3: the name, so I'm a Spurs fan. Um, it's, It's two weeks into the season. We're about to play our second game against Man City. I know. I've been staring at my fantasy football team pretty much for the past two hours and I can't take <laughs> a couple of the Man City players out and I can't captain Kane. And I know my friends are in my league are already about 40 points ahead of me because I had a disastrous first week. So I'm already feeling it. Um, a massively passionate soccer fan, as most of my friends will tell you, to the degree where it really affects my week. And, and as a business owner, that's really bad. So I actually... I, sometimes I'll skip watching the game until Tuesday, so it doesn't have an influence. I mean, do you chaps do you follow sports at all? Like yeah. you, NFL, hockey. What's your what's your
0: big things? Lee, you, what what sports do you what sports are you watching this day? Uh, ultimate fighting, uh,
1: definitely ultimate fighting. Not at all. Um, I tend to follow people that follow sports. That's usually
3: oh, <laughs> <laughs> you not a sports
1: <laughs> Yeah, I'm a fan of, of you know, it's, it's heavily influenced by the, the company that I keep. So if yeah. someone's a huge fan of this team, I, I will absolutely commit to being a super fan of that team.
3: Oh, good. You know what? You only need to know, I think it's three or five facts about anything. So if somebody says something, just Google it, get five facts, bang, you're away. It's like the yeah. five whys. You're straight into the conversation.
2: Yeah.
0: I, uh, I, I, uh, I'm a Yankee fan, baseball. Oh, uh, yes, And, uh, for football, uh, I don't watch American football. Um, it's just a little bit too boring for me and not the energy is not right for me. Um, uh, for football, uh, I hate to say it, um, but I'm a United fan. Uh, man United. Yeah. We're also in a, we're in a rebuilding period right now, as you're aware. So, uh, and then, um, the company I keep, it's my family exclusively. So, um, Hold on one second. I think I just got to... So I was saying, the company I keep, it's my family exclusively. And interestingly enough, we just got off a little bit of uh, uh, a pattern. For the past month, we were watching, we were recording, and each night we were watching the last 30 minutes of each stage of the Tour de France. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. And that is, I mean, is super-duper exciting. And uh, my sons, I have 2 boys, they were really enjoying seeing that type of competition because it's so different and it shows a really interesting side of people and what people are capable of doing. So that was really uh, nice to share that with them.
3: That's incredible. Yeah. And you get to see a bit of the world that you don't necessarily always see, do you? It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So we have the tour down under in Adelaide and they, That's right. you know it goes it goes nuts here. I've got to ask you, so you're a Yankees fan and you come from California. Yeah.
0: So... So what happened was I actually grew up a Dodgers fan. Okay. So they had like two leagues. Like imagine if they had like a, an A and a B of the Premier League. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe once a year, the teams would overlap and play each other. But they were separate and distinct. Um, and a lot of that is because of the way the history of how baseball was rolled out. in okay. the And um, I, I like that team. So it's in one league and the Yankees are another Um, in another league. And I've been here. I was talking to somebody about this. I've been in New York for more than half my life now. And uh, so by default, I consider myself... When people ask me, are you Californian or a New Yorker? I I say New York um, because I've been here so long and I have roots here. And when I moved here initially, I couldn't root for the Mets, which are the other New York team because they're... They're in the same league as the Dodgers,
3: okay. so
0: I developed a liking for the Yankees and it's going to sound horrible, but they are such a likable team given the um, fan base in the area locally here and then the history um, and the stadium itself. Um, not that the Mets stadium doesn't have the same appeal, the fans and the atmosphere
3: is really something to, to see and witness. I've never been to a baseball match. I would love to go. You know, um, I, if you're ever here, if you're ever here, I would love to take you. But do you know what? I was almost there. I was, I, um, I was meant to be going to the Sprint Conference uh, next month in yeah. Bo- uh, Colorado. I was going to yeah. stop in LA, yeah. and I got a good friend in New York who's from California who might listen to this and might – He's a Dodgers fan and he might go, what? Dodgers to Yankee? But um, yeah, I want to come
2: back. I, I love My wife and I went to New York. I just love it over there. Like, it's so cool. Such a great city. Yeah. yeah. For lawn jarts, we have a set in the garage. What's that? What's that? Sorry?
1: It's, if you're ever up for badminton or lawn jarts, uh, we have a set in the garage. You can just uh, pull on by our house.
3: Oh, beautiful. I, I don't, a, that, don't that, offer me that. That was,
2: that was, um,
1: that was, that was Lee humor. I just want to let you know it's, Lee-ism. it's lee It's not true. Is we it? But, uh, just to let you know, that's a, um, underdog sport. That's something you, oh. you play with your kids. It's, uh, it, it's one of those things, but just the offers still actually, it's, um,
3: I'd love to take you up on that, Lee. But please explain to me. I'm always looking for new dad tricks. Okay. Help me
1: out. Okay, let me just give you a quick one. So, lawn jarts, I think, is outlawed. Um, probably some <laughs> people died. Probably some people died.
3: And it's Australia, it doesn't matter in Australia. Yeah. Look, yeah. I'll tell you a quick a quick story. I put um, so I'm, it's so cold here at the moment. I put um, I've been wearing long johns to bed. My wife thinks I'm having a, a love affair with my long johns. Mm. Anyway, I put I put them on yesterday, and I felt this bite and um bear in mind it's like 16 30 degrees here at the moment it's pretty it's pretty rubbish <laughs> there was a wasp inside my long johns and stung me on the back of my legs so in australia there, there really are no rules you know like you can just get bitten fatally anywhere so sorry Lee. Yes.
1: I, I, I know there's a number of um venomous species in australia oh, Where oh
2: yeah.
1: Where but i'll just real let me call, I, I can't leave this uh this loose here. Um, so, lawn darts, if you ever play darts, obviously you throw a sharp uh, small missile at a dartboard, you know, so you, you compete to try to get a high score. So, lawn darts is basically a dart that is larger, um, so it could do more damage, and then you give it to children to throw into a hoop. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I'm sure that it's, it's not legal now, but yeah, you, know, if you have a set, you can get them on eBay. And you're welcome to, to roll on over to our house and we'll
3: play. I'm, I'm up for that. Let's start an international tournament. You, I can be Australia and and um, England, uh, bring my kids along. My little one's got an arm on him. I'll tell you what, he'll be a pitcher or a kicker, one of the two. So I reckon we could get some sort of international thing going on here. <laughs> And what was the other thing, Blake? Sorry, we're not going to end up talking about digital technology. Oh, I was, I
1: no, not at all. I was going to, at first, I started off with badminton, but then I was, I was thinking, you know, that actually is a real sport. I'm just not uh, good at it. So I,
2: I, shifted,
3: uh, I shifted, I pivoted to lawn darts. Oh, nice. Bit of business agility there. I love it. All right. So um, so you asked me, wait, let me circle back. So you asked me about my influences growing up. Um, yeah. And also, what was it like
0: growing up in East London when, when you were a young? A young
3: okay. man. i got to say, I was, I, it was pretty unspectacular. Uh, so I was just outside of London itself, so just in Stratford, just outside of Stratford where they had the Olympics. And it was, it, I was just like a normal kid growing up. I mean, I was into art, mm-hmm. um, into media. I always thought I'd get into film, to be honest with you, or advertising. Uh, Love comics. That was a big influence for me. Comics. It's it's still our
2: I
0: mean, uh, it's nice to hear you say that. I just my my oldest son Axel, who's five. Nice. I just, started, right? buying him, I just started. I just started buying him some comics because he's just been demonstrating some reading skills, and I oh, figured wow. I would just I just started feeding that a little bit. So um, it's really nice to. Hear that you're a fan of comics.
3: Oh, how old's your son?
0: My oldest is five, and then the youngest is just turned two.
3: Wow! So you're a year behind me on both of your boys. You're like me in baby jail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how about you, Lee? I have one daughter. She's eleven. Yeah. Oh, so you're out the light. You're in the light, and she's must got- be.
1: Yeah, I no longer have to ask permission just to go to the grocery store. Yeah, a grand vacation. I don't have to do that anymore.
3: Uh, have you lost your cat burglar skills? You know the dad skills where you have to be very silent and <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, yes, I've lost I have lost all those. I've I've um, totally de-skilled.
3: <laughs> oh dear. All right. So so get so yeah, so pretty pretty normal. Used to uh was massively into kind of um rock music so growing up I think just when I came out of uni um, me and my buddy well my buddies brought me on board and they were running a record label so ran a record label for a while with those guys I, I, my only motivation to run it was to get tickets to rock festivals to get VIP because I hated sleeping out with everybody else mm-hmm. and which worked um, and, and that got to a point where it got too big and just kind of exploded in our faces um, Ran studio in London, in Camden, and that was pretty amazing. But um, I think, you know, uh, I think life really began for me properly as an adult when I started travelling. Like you know, seeing the world and seeing lots of new cultures and getting that experience and being away properly. Because I lived the other
2: end of the country at university, but moving to Australia was a massive leap. So tell us, uh, we'll try to bring it back, uh, I, will, I won't talk about I'm slowly helping you claw it back. We're coming back, we're bringing it back.
1: So tell us about. Tell us a little bit about um, your work, what you're doing.
3: Okay, so um, I keep saying okay. I know, this all sounds terrible on a podcast where you say now and okay. When I practice my presentations, I always try not to say okay and now at the beginning or so, at the beginning of everything I say or um. Oh, well, I run an agency or consultancy with a corporate innovation and strategy consultancy called More Space for Light. Mm -hmm. We've been in existence for three years and eight months, and it's exciting, exhilarating, exhausting all the years. You've got me on a Friday night Mm -hmm. where I'm at my most vulnerable before I have to boot up and and be a full-time dad for the weekend and balance you know, 80% bad or 90% bad, 10% try and get all the stuff done I couldn't fit in during the week.
2: Yeah.
0: And you just mentioned that you were in uh, Melbourne last week. Um, so how actively are you traveling to visit clients or lead workshops or meet with people? And I know you mentioned that you like uh, it, your life began when you started traveling. Um, has that been compromised that, that feeling been compromised with the introduction of kids and more responsibilities and how have you been able to manage that?
3: Uh, it's hard, isn't isn't it? And just so you know, um, before I answer the question, I'm pausing because I'm giving you that opportunity if you want. So I'm not just rambling on as well in case you want to just go into a conversation. Uh It's hard. I've had to be really, I've made lots of mistakes, Running a business, I've never ran a business before, and I've I've made I've had lots of epic wins, and over the last year, once we hit three years, I've had to be really strategic in the respect of I can only do so much, so I have to stay focused and make the right decisions, and the decisions I've been making it uh, have specifically been focused on gaining. Um, Gaining customers and gaining clients and building communities in um, building our community Mm -hmm. in Melbourne. Melbourne's um, about an hour and a half away from us. Mm -hmm. So it isn't as local as Adelaide, but I really like Melbourne. It reminds me of back home. It's very similar looking and feeling to London. It's uh, a 24, I think it's a 24 hour city Mm -hmm. and the people there are just amazing. There's just some amazing companies over there. Not taking anything away from Adelaide. But to me, going back to Melbourne feels there's no glass ceiling there. And I, and I, like, I like that. I like the opportunity.
1: Mm-hmm. So what originally drew you to Australia? What, what
3: um, you know, how did that happen? Gravity, I think. But <laughs> I ended up, um, I, so I went traveling. I split up with my long-term girlfriend. Felt I knew I was going to go traveling at some point. And ended up going through Asia and I knew I was coming to Sydney. I was just going round Australia and just fell in love with the place. The first day I was here, I remember i was sitting out, having a beer, looking at the Sydney Opera House because I was in Sydney for seven years. And just, it was January 5th and usually in London in January, especially between the 1st to the 20th, everyone's, everyone's out of money. Everyone's miserable. It's like one degree outside. It's, it's not a fun place to be in, in the UK during that time. I'm sure people from the UK that are listening to this will hopefully empathise and relate to that. And here I was in the sun having a beer. It's hot. It was amazing. It was everything I could ever imagine. And I'd only ever seen Australia on daytime soaps. Uh, I saw a picture of the Sydney Opera House in the creative magazine, Creative Review. So that was my only ever experience. So this was like a whole new world. You know, like for the first I think for the first year I had to keep explaining to people back home that they have cars in Australia. They also have TV and cable because people's understanding of what it was like living here was just so different, like so low. It's just it was it was pretty amazing. Do so you think you live down in the bush? I haven't lived out in the bush, I've always lived in the city. So I got here and after my mum said, you know, stay, it's a good place to stay. I abandoned all my plans to travel and just decided I'm going to make a life. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to get back into design and I'm going to figure things out. And uh, it was more of, there wasn't really a long-term plan there. It was pretty much day to day, to week to week, to just figure out how you make it work.
0: I I was looking at your, um, your background and some of your professional experiences. And you mentioned this earlier, some of the influences that you had around rock and roll, and the work that you did in starting the record label, and um, always kind of been into uh, ads and advertising. Um, your first couple of professional experiences, all the way through Fox. Um, you know, you did some work uh, more on the marketing and advertising side. Is that is that correct in the first couple roles that you had out of uni? And then, you know, how did you transition more into the work that you did at Fox and focusing more on? Uh, maybe a different aspect of supporting the brand or helping their brand radiate.
3: So uh, that's a good question, David. So when I came to, so I went almost backwards in my um, in my in my roles in the respect of I came out of uni. I was I did a digital degree. I thought I was going to do film I got into multimedia you might remember lingo flash and all that I was a terrible coder that could do graphic and design I I kept to Australia and I was doing more and more print work originally I worked with when I first got in my first design job was with Lonsdale the boxing brand I love so I their doing, I love um, their line Yeah it's cool so we did it so it was weird I was designing t-shirts and seeing people wearing the stuff that I was designing it's huge uh, and then going through um working at a print house and I got to Fox and joined their digital team. Uh they took a bit of a, a chance with me because I'd spent so long in the print world to come into that digital space. And I think I was pretty lucky at the time I made that transition because it was before iPhone, it was before um adaptive displays and responsive and all of that, you know, the screen size thing and apps. So it was pretty straight HTML web stuff. And I transitioned more and more into the marketing and comm side of that because I was working at a broadcast network and social was coming in and they had to change their mindset and the way they uh, had a dialogue with their, with their community, with their, with their fans, with the people that followed them because I had to start thinking about social media. Now, not many people knew about social media, and I didn't profess to be some sort of expert. However, I had an open enough mind to start exploring and being able to challenge and, and introduce new concepts. So I was very lucky at right right time, right place. Cool. Yeah, so that's interesting way you, you express
1: that is having a Benjamin Button type of career where you started off and went, you know, kind of went in a reverse yeah. direction. That is interesting. A, <laughs> well, let me let me ask you a quick one before I forget so tell me a little bit I want to bring about I also want to talk about design and your work so help me understand the design work you do in more space for light
3: so our design work our 80% of our work now is in regards is in relation to human-centered design design workshops design sprints more on the workshop side of it Daniel Steelman calls it conversation designer. I, I wouldn't say I'm that, but I'm 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 applying that kind of creativity now to workshops. The way I put together, um, or the, I get the guys as well to help me out, put together uh, exercises and programs, and we we dip in and out of things like Luma as well, and use their tools. So. The, the, the design aspect of it comes in the prototype and the polish in the brand and the way we actually treat more space like a product itself. Mm-hmm. So that would, I reckon that would be a lot of where our designs come from and that's just because we've spent the last few months rebranding or enhancing the brand from where how, it was.
1: How long, are you, how long are your projects?
2: How long have our project? Oh, gosh. They've got shorter oh, yeah, you know, and shorter.
3: They've exactly. got shorter and shorter since the design aspect. We've got some clients and retainers where we come in and we consult. But to be honest with you, I, I prefer to come in and leave as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And the reason that is I'd rather be engaged and, mm-hmm. and provide maximum value than like be something like mm-hmm. some entity in an organization that's bleeding out and not offering any value. Mm-hmm. So we, I, I like coming in for the projects. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what does me, trouble me, I'd like to see the project launched and, and it's a constant conflict of coming in, running a design sprint or a design program or doing the UX or helping with a product strategy and setting up all the analytics and the optimization. But sometimes having to hand that over because it's kind of like your baby or you've helped them that far, I find that, I find that challenging. Mm-hmm.
0: As as your focus and um, I, I hear you because of the scale at which Crystal Cove runs. Um, you know, I don't have the luxury of being able to be there at all different points of the life cycle, um, and need to be very uh, precise on how I spend my time. And I have also seen that it has uh, the. The extra capacity that I'm able to build up has allowed me to focus on other types of projects and other types of business issues and clients and um, and even across different sectors or industries. Um, I'm interested to hear two things. Um, partners, who do you work with? And do you want to give a shout out to anybody to help you um, complement your offering? And not only that, but you know, um, just give a shout out to the work they're doing. And is there anything out there on the horizon? You mentioned some of the rebranding work. Um, and it's cool if you say, you know, stay tuned, more to come. But uh, is there anything out there that you could share with us that's new, that's helping you on the rebrand path?
3: Oh, well, there's some things I can't talk about that are happening that that when you said that question, David, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. But I just want to touch on what you said in terms of being precise. I, I, that's something I've learned um, because because there's so much going on, you have to be so precise in terms of what you offer and the way you go to the market. And it's yeah. taken us so long to define our unique value propositions. So you'll see on our website, we don't profess to do that in full service right. design. we user experience, product strategy. Even that has its own nuances. And I think it's so important. In regards to um, partnering, so as you most probably, can, well, you can see on our website, we're the Asia-Pacific partner of the Design Sprint Academy. We're very proud of our partnership there. And we've been with those guys for about a year. Lee pressed me before to ask me, uh, that makes sense because you're being a Londoner and being a partner. but. Um, yes. The story there's a little bit different. Also, we're building partnerships up in Australia with other local consultancies, whether they're change management or organisational design, because we complement them. Plus, we have a partnership with a team that we use out of Asia for our development, and I have a long-standing relationship with somebody I work with in Sydney who's gone over there, started a business and through those guys, we're able to bring them in on projects. And we're slowly, there's a few other people that I'm starting to bring in, especially as we've started to change the design sprint process to build out the actual prototype and testing part. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we were very much inspired by, I think it's Tom Chee from mm-hmm. Google, who yeah. spoke about the learning loop at the last yep. sprint
2: conference. Yeah.
3: And we're constantly looking at things like this to, um, to influence us. And I'm going on a bit of a stream here, but we've just come back. One of the reason we went to Melbourne to see, and I'm more than happy to give this person a shout out because she's absolutely amazing. Her name's Dara Simkin. She uh heads up a, a company called Project Play and she's affiliated with IDEO. And um she ran a conference, as I said, called Project Play this week. And we it was a really interesting event, and that's why we went there. A to support her because she's a friend, and also because I was really curious to learn more about what she was doing. And my journey, personal journey, is to go out to all these different types of um, niche design thinking, for instance, improv, serious play, and all these sort of things, and learn how I can bring them back and incorporate them into what we're doing, where we can actually, as opposed to them being um, And I've got to be careful again in terms of how I frame this because some people are quite skeptical in terms of the business value or the short-term business value of having everybody play with Lego for the day, but how I can use these tools and these techniques and incorporate them into programs that can demonstrate outcomes as quickly and efficiently as possible to highlight the value of working in this way. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like... Divergent learning and prototype thinking is where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that allows us to, that's kind of, that that really satisfies my own personal yearning for a bit of actual tool development, like building stuff and getting on the tools and being able to stop at the prototype stage and hand it off. And once it gets that horrible stage of long burn, big app build projects, not having anything to do with that. Mm-hmm. But, um, that's, yeah, I really like the prototype because there, there, there's really no, um, there's no ceiling there. You can, you can really explore and, and learn.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. And what kind of instruments do you have right behind you?
3: <laughs> well, my wife's bass. Is it a bass and a, and a guitar? There's three guitars over there. There oh, used wow. to be more guitars. I, I've sold two. So when you become a dad, you start losing... Um, (laughs) You start, hopefully you bring it back, give me some hope. You start losing all your, like, hobbies. So I've got, I bought a Fender Strat and Eric Clapton Blackie Fender Strat. You've you've got a a Gibson song, uh, gosh, I haven't Mm -hmm. opened it up so long, songwriter Mm -hmm. and an Ibanez, my wife bought me. Uh, I've also got uh, all my wives. We have the same one. No, that's, I'll do it. Uh, yeah. That's my wife, she teaches kinder music, and there's our digital piano, so she's a piano wow. teacher. as well. And these are our headphones, which she'll tell me off for mm-hmm. using, and uh, here's my motorbike helmet. John, uh, John Veton from Design Sprint Academy, whenever we talk, because I talk, uh, we, we talk during the evenings, he thinks I'm Jeff Bezos sitting here in my little uh, Amazon 1.0 situation. <laughs> cool. Uh, this is the one corner of the house where i've got where i'm allowed to take things off of my desk like no lego this is my it's kind of meter by mm-hmm. 40 centimeters
1: so as far as your background in music do you see a lot of connection points and fusion with how you improv with other people or the discipline it takes to make music the harmony aspect playing with others um being creative Do you see that as meshing well with design and your work now?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd say I'm more – I was originally in fine art, and the only reason I got into digital was because my mum saw a documentary that had all these smack addicts in Hackney that were art students, and she was worried. And she she said, you best get yourself a real job. And I thought, well, (laughs) computer design might be the way forward. And my dad, for years – he was a black cabbie used to tell people that I work for Pixar because that was his level of understanding but in regards to the the, the synergy with um, music very much with patterns and system design I'm a big I'm a big believer in system design and how things fit together and also in terms of creativity just being able to kind of just, just being able to flow and and, yeah. and having an open mindset, I think that's really important. I, I got a I, another conversation I had today with somebody, um, <clears throat> all about him. But the, the chap, I'm, I'm, the chap mentioned something about competition, like we might be in competition down the road, and it got me really, it really troubled me because the. The, the, that 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 goes against everything I'm trying to build with more space, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this. With you, you're just on your own path where you you're not that fussed about it. There's plenty of work to go around. You'd rather collaborate than compete. And mm-hmm. as soon as you start competing with people, you're just trying to um, you're just trying to win their race as opposed to win your own. So yeah, I think I think the creativity is a big part. And I think David and Lee, if you guys if you guys come if you guys have made that transition, so I'm sorry if I don't know this already, but once you make that transition from design or creativity to strategy, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's really troublesome because you have a real hard trouble, like you have a real real challenge to switch between creativity and strategy because one can be so dry and the other so much more dynamic and interesting. And it's really, you know, sometimes you kind of feel like you have to handhold both of them, otherwise you end up in this, Six Sigma world. And you don't want
0: to be there because it's... You know, on that point, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the type of work that we do, uh, I find us straddling both on the advisory side, where we might be talking to people leveraging, as you mentioned, some of the tools that we've acquired and formulated and packaged into our go-to-market strategy. And then the more dry execution on the consulting side. I see that quite a bit. But, you know, I think... When you look at like the Sprint book, for example, and the methodology that's outlined and the even if you break it down into the checklist, and then you adapt some portion of that, and you, like you said, you package it, and that's what you go and talk to clients, a subset of clients about, I, I think it kind of increases your chances for success. And, yeah. um, and one of the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, similarly, I have different methodologies, like I was talking to Lee about some certification that I'm going for to help on that execution side of the consulting business. You know, I, I'm a hack musician myself. And um, I'm also a dad. And, you know, you kind of have to check your ego at the door on a daily basis. And it's interesting to hear another person that loves prototyping and trying things out and does, maybe doesn't take themselves that serious and isn't uh, afraid to fail. It sounds like you're one of those people that are cut from that, um, from that kind of you know, same stone. I was wondering, uh, and I'm I'm sorry to try to squeeze this in here, but you know, I'm interested to hear, it sounds like you've had a lot of journeys and a lot of interesting commercial experiences and, you know, um, personal uh, experiences. Tell us about a failure that is, you know, tell us about a big, big failure that was very pivotal for you and how did you respond to it and what was the outcome?
3: Oh wow! Okay, well, a big failure. So, so I, I, I big failure. Why? I, it, well, a, a big failure would also mean that it means something to me. So, I wouldn't say it was a big failure, but I could refer to something that was pivotal pivotal on my yeah. whole life, and that would be. Um, so, I've so I've lost my mum, and I've lost my dad, and um, I lost my dad a few years ago to cancer. Sorry, and that. Out, uh, and and lost my mum uh, a few years before that. When uh, this was both times after I moved to Australia, both and my brother's out here now as well. And I guess that would be the the pivotal moment for me is losing your parents and realizing that all this serious stuff. It's not there, so really, it's really really insignificant. Yeah, and um, also my wife working in um, before she became full-time mum and teacher working uh working as a radiotherapist you know like you've you've really you've really got to embrace that kind of play not take yourself too seriously just like you said David and yeah and a lot of, a lot of what you do and I, I um I'd imagine especially the consulting part of it 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 is to some degree a Hail Mary <laughs> you know like you're, you're basing a lot of your strategy on people and people yeah. are unpredictable yeah. and that's and, and creativity is the juice and you've got to leverage that and yeah. utilize that to help bring clients on the journey because otherwise otherwise it becomes too um, comes too black and white like, yeah. you can't always win so in terms of pivotal i'd say losing parents be growing up very quickly and 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 and, and having to take responsibility and also being mature enough to be light
2: in regards to what I'm doing and not, and not take myself too seriously. That mm-hmm. was a bit deep, a bit shallow.
0: So yeah, you know, like I, I love, it. I, love I, I mean, Lee will probably tell you that I always tend to fall back on those kind of maybe human questions a, a little bit more than the technical ones, but I, I love the human element and I love the experience in the story.
3: Well, let, let me tell you guys another, so More Space for Light, um, I got I got told that I should put this on my website, but I refuse to because uh, I'd rather tell it to people in person. So More Space for Light, the name comes from my now six-year-old son. So I was going for a bit of a, have you heard of a chap called Vince Frost? Vince Frost, he wrote a book called Design Your Life. Somebody else wrote something called Design Your Life as well, but Vince Frost, yep. Frost Collective, Uh, he's a pommy guy, moved from England over to Sydney, really look up to what he does. He does some amazing work with typography and design. These guys are just terrific. And um, around that time, I I think I read that book and and my dad passed and all that, and it had a real profound effect on me. And I knew I was going to do this. I knew I was going to make that leap. And I was looking for all, you know, when you, you guys know, when, you, when you're looking to do something, you look for any excuse and You say, oh, well, that nudged me and that nudged me and this nudged me. And Coming from that kind of design world, as opposed to starting um, a business with a business model or a business plan, I actually started with a name and the name came from my son. So one night I was home and I I, I always, I worked long hours. I was actually working when we were having our banter on LinkedIn and we were putting my son to bed he's three years old and he said mommy i want more space for light oh wow and i said to my wife i was like what does that mean and she turned around to me she said well he wants more time to play he wants more time to to, to read he's not ready for bed and i i, I was like that is it That's what, that's wow. what I, want. I want more space for light and everything fell into place from there and from that name it's almost been an anchor Mm -hmm. to become a mantra so say for instance um, we got called to run a, a workshop around my birthday next month however I've already got family thing planned more space for light more space for light it's always yeah, always have to make the right decision and and it is that's that's the mantra and that's something our clients and partners really like because we bring that aspect and that's, that's really stand by that principle of that simplicity and bringing that light to other people.
1: That, that name actually resonated with me the first time I heard it. I thought, wow, that really makes sense. And another thing that you said uh, in regards to being more serious, and I think the more serious you are, the less seriously you are received for sure. And that's a really ironic situation that it takes a long time and sometimes never to fully understand. I think you have cracked that code.
3: I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, I, I do. You, do you listen to people like uh, Product Breakfast Club and Jonathan Courtney? And, yeah. I mean, I mean that that guy is just. I really respect that guy. He's really now. He's. I'd imagine how transparent. I imagine like you don't. You see just the top of the iceberg of what's going on, but he he really is. Um, the way he's built his profile and stayed consistent in terms of his public profile and how he talks and not really changing throughout the last few years has been really interesting and has been a big inspiration for me as a business leader. And also just seeing that and seeing how, he's, how he's, um, his focus and his philosophy have had a real big impact on me
2: personally and professionally.
3: I uh,
0: what's what's next for? I, I kind of asked this earlier, and I guess you couldn't really talk about some of the things that are on the horizon for more space for light. Um, you know, one of the things that I I think you should put the story or a little blurb out there, however you deem it most appropriate. Um, I think that makes total sense, and I think based off of uh, how Lee and I I love the name myself. And if you could condense that and find a way to communicate that, I look at that as something that um, could help people like the story even more or want to peel back the layers of the onion or find out more maybe.
3: Well, it stop us ranking for light fittings and light globes, you know, <laughs> 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 Thank you. How about yourself? So, t- so tell me, like, I know I'm not meant to ask. I, I always try and assume the role of being interviewed. But tell me um,
2: about your, your practice and, and how we kind of, how we cross over. Mm-hmm. Lee? Okay, so uh, we'll cross over. Here we
1: go. Um, so I, of course, work for IBM. Yeah. A rather large uh, company. Uh, and what I do is I work in a very small internal design agency, and we do transformation for IBM internal tools, for the most part. What I've recently, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've gone through transformation myself. The latest uh, thing that I'm into, of course, is design sprints. Um, So that's basically all I do now. And what I'm trying to do is teach other people with Inside IBM how to sprint, how to to have that mindset and make use of the methodologies. And I take all, as you said, Jonathan Courtney and all these other folks um, and tools for collaborating, like Mural, et cetera. Uh, I listen to thought leaders, experts, and I'm always... Trying to understand what is the best way to do that, especially with a globally diverse organization. Um, so I, I try to scale it and um, so I scale it, I give the mindset to others as, as much as I can, I try to give it away, but uh, overall I, I am into transformation and design sprints is my tool of choice to do that.
3: Can I ask how, um, sorry David, I, I was going to ask you next, but I, I'm really curious and I think this is a big question on everyone's mind, How? how how difficult, or how much of a challenge, have you found bringing that program into IBM? Because they have their own methodology, don't they?
2: We do.
1: So we have enterprise design thinking. Thank you for asking about that. I was trying not to oversell it. Um, so we have <sighs> enterprise design thinking, and at last count, we have we have for any one company, we we probably have more designers than just about anyone. We have it in the thousands. That is thousands big, and we have the articles have been working to scale design thinking as aggressively as, as anyone. Um, so obviously that's a very useful discipline and, and how I marry those two things as far as enterprise design thinking, uh, and design sprints. One, I, um, I infuse enterprise design thinking into a design sprint. So there are cases where we'll quote unquote flex sprint. And that's where, um, so basically instead of doing a full, a big sprint, a five day sprint, We'll want to get together and say, "Well, we've got three hours. We'll have the decider for three hours. How are we going to do it?" And I will go through the enterprise design thinking components, and I'll draw them in. Sometimes it's more for um, observing and reflecting. Sometimes it's actually for the making. And um, sometimes I'll just do in, you know, the entire classic original sprint components. And I also rely also on the, um, the leadership and inspiration from Google and their website and and, and you Dan and and that's one, of the, that's one of the sorry I'm going long here um so uh, that's that's another reason why I network so so actively is because every time I do that I learn something new I get a new tool I find a different way to phrase things I find a different way to energize and excite people I draw from that energy because a big component facilitation is making energy and making that space for light. And you have to have confidence and you have to be highly practiced. Uh, and, it, and it's not something you can generate from yourself. You have to draw from the energy of others. So that's why I network so hard. That's why I try to um, look to all aspects of creativity, facilitation, and methods and conversation design, as you said. Uh, and that's, that's my way. And I think that that new openness that IBM is trying to create is something I can help with. Yeah, uh, that's where I'm coming from.
3: Just, just, just on that, um, it's worth checking out Douglas Ferguson from Voltage Control. He's just—I um, I was very lucky. He surprised me the other day by sending me a draft of his book to check, and I think he caught me at the best possible time because my wife was in hospital and I had the day there, and I was—and um, I basically read the whole book in a few hours. And by the time he'd woken up, because of the time difference, <laughs> I'd already provided him back all these alts and changes that I noticed. So I, I recommend reading that book. that He's just, um, I'll give him a plug. Uh, I don't mind doing that. Uh, but also, like, so did, did you find, though, did people roll their eyes when you brought Design Sprints into IBM? Where they were like, oh, another thing, or we've already got our toolkit. How did you overcome that challenge?
1: I'm still doing that. I'm still doing it. And I'll just say real quick, I want to... Um, so I'm meeting Douglas next week for lunch. So this is, this is kind of fun. I'll send him my
3: love. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll give me a huge hug. Um, so, but yeah, absolutely. It's happening today. And, it, um, and I always have to be able to tell the story and defend the value of it. But I think what's most important is in, in considering design doing... Design sprints in having a cross-discipline team that is laser-focused on producing something of value is the right way. You can call it a design sprint. You can call it anything. You can call it anything. Um, but that's, in practice, what it is. And that's what everyone needs. Everyone needs to be super focused. You have to find a way to break down the psychological safety, make everyone feel loved uh, and listened to and uh, able to contribute um so absolutely that's something i continue to do but uh i think it delivers such amazing results that you can only ignore it for so long after you deliver results repeatedly this is not a fluke it happened again it happened again we're able to bring people together and, and create something that would not have been created otherwise people are forced to pay attention even the people that originally may not have been as interested um but uh, um, I do infuse enterprise design thinking. I use enterprise design thinking for the pre-work. I use it for the post-work, for all types of work. Um, and I just use all the tools available to me. And I, as I get more experience, I'm able to draw upon them in the moment they're most needed. That is what experience brings and, and yields. And that's what confidence through doing and doing and uh, and just constantly being in a state of practice and, and learning and reaching out to people that is the right move to try to understand and listen to people as much as possible
3: well're we're, we're, we're very lucky in the, the 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 community that has been built around the design sprint program itself because everyone seems really cool everyone's really open it is kind of open source anyway I mean it was open source when Jake put it in the book and everyone's embraced it in their own, f- own fashion sorry David I've got I've got another question I've never had Lee on the phone before so I'm gonna I'm just gonna take advantage of him for a couple more minutes so when you um so I, I understand the pre-work because uh, the guys at Design Sprint Academy uh, and as well as Jay over in New York um have come up with the the, the problem framing which everyone's really you know everyone's had a stab at their own versions of it it's not new and uh, and I, and I it's a maximum value. I found that to my folly that you, you have to have some sort of rigor going into the sprint itself. How about the post work? Because I think that's something that Douglas tackles in his book. How, how, how have you found that? Like, because often, you know, getting people to realize that the design sprint itself is just a learning process. It isn't the whole program. It's just, it's just the micro, not the macro. Yeah. How you what do you do? Can you give us some examples of? <laughs>
1: okay, so first of all, I want to say uh, Stefan. Um, he's the CEO of
3: uh, Sprint Switzerland, or I may have. Yeah. Okay, I've got his three-month thing. I've actually, right, so- um, I'm actually. I'm actually at the moment. I'm dissecting it because we've right. got our own similar kind of thing, and um
1: Yeah, Yeah. So sorry, he, Stefan. <laughs> I like, yeah, I like. Um, I like where he's going there. He's trying to put it all together. And everyone. Everyone is doing an experiment. To try to figure it out, I was doing an experiment, um, like Robert Scrobe. He's doing he's doing experiments for for running virtual design sprints. I think it probably comes down to the unique culture that folks have, um, the teams, the unique teams that they have, that really defines after the post sprint activity and how to get post sprint success. Uh, I know with with some of the names you just mentioned, code sprints. Are that was one way of thinking about it. When it's done, you bring the technology folks, the the creative technologists, into a room, and then you say, "Well," and hopefully they were a part of the sprint. But you you after it, you have a, a a very clear and sober conversation on this is the technology that's available when when we consider the time frame and the budget. This is what's possible. I think those gyrations are essential. Um, and as I said, I think it has a lot to do with the very unique uh, way of doing. For us, we try. I think it's important to involve um, folks, technical people, and the people that are making the makers in the design sprint because we know from the psychological component that people support the things that they create. People support a world they create together, and
3: uh, in the game,
1: it's called. Yeah, okay. A lot of, um, that's uh, I'm, I'm ripping off a bunch of famous people as we as we as we go, but that is true. Y- you need to um, one, you need to be generous with your idea. And I, this is another thing I've said before: the the idea is easy. You have to equal your the quality of your idea with your hustle. Um, so you really need to give it away for the most part, and and then invite the smart people to sort it out because you're only going to be successful if they join in. It's a lot of work. And uh, it takes some heavy lifting. So we bring those technology people in at the beginning, At, the, at the, literally at, as soon as I hear about something and I think it's going to be real, it, once it, it gets beyond the, the twinkle in someone's eye, and maybe even right then, I will, we will send notes out to technology people saying, what do you think of this? Can you join? Um, is this something that can stand by itself? We bring them in. And, and 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 yeah, and the, and and then as we go, we have the we have the open conversation of what's going to take, and then and then after we have those what I would what I would call code sprints, and we also I think I'm going to finish here. I feel it coming. Um, we also bring in the executives as much as possible because you can create the most. And I think I've said this before as well. You can create the most amazing thing that will never get built, and that's so painful. So um, the funders, the funders, not to be confused with thunder, the funder people um, are really important, and you also need to make sure that you are hacking growth. Executives have a trajectory of where the business is going to go. Your idea needs to support and facilitate that. You need to make it look like it's their idea. Many times it is, but it really needs to just fit right in there. It has to be tucked. If you have a rub, if there's friction with your idea and your implementation, it will never, uh, you know, get to orbit. Get to orbit. The escape velocity will never be reached. So
3: that's my approach. Cool. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being generous. So we, we, I've almost taken – I kind of hold the tech guys back as long as possible. And and the reason – because I try and – so we – We've adapted um, some different frameworks, kind of like the Im- importance versus difficulty. So once we start getting ideas teased out, so we've been using our design sprint intro as the first stage in the design sprint process. So we run this design sprint in- intro that I, des- that I created, 90-minute workshop, slow bar. It's kind of like the, the, the lightning decision jam. It's like my version of lightning decision jam. And the purpose of it is just to get the ideas and show the value of it. And we take those ideas and we put them through this matrix and and get, and get share them out and then get people to rank them. And then from there, we can work out what aligns to the business objectives. And then we can start bringing in what's feasible, viable, getting those business models down to make sure that from a, you know, you, you'd appreciate this at IBM, uh, and I'm sure, David, in, in your consultancy as well, when you're bringing in innovation, that um, often we talk about the user experience and the customer experience, but we don't really think about the employee experience and whether the business has the capabilities and the resources to be able to support these wild and crazy ideas. They might have the tech team and they might have You know, sometimes they don't even have the infrastructure. So what what we've been finding is that the the business model canvas and and the customer uh, proposition canvas and things like that, where we can start tapping in, I think, not from such a practical point of view, how you actually bring the tech team in, but more from a um, strategic point of view, how we can support this if this is a thing we're going to do. So, that could be a change management program, mm-hmm. anything like that. And then, once we've got a plan for that, we can start saying, okay, we're ready to commit as a business. We de risk this to as much as we can, where this isn't a Hail Mary. This is like, we can see a flight plan here and then move on to the next thing. So, little a little bit nuanced.
1: One mini phrase I just want to throw in is, um, is we have a fixation on non self like we're always trying to identify this isn't me or this isn't mine or this isn't my area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's right. Um, and we always want, to, want it to be tidy and mm-hmm. I think we all need to con and I think you are, but for everyone, I think everyone needs to constantly not be so fixated. This is not my domain. This is not my area. This doesn't fit exactly. And be open to uh, a passive creative existence where everything is coming in everything's coming out. Mm-hmm. is a prototype. That's something, we see at IBM. Uh, I think
3: that's the way. Uh, also, as you touched on what you just said, it's also a game. You've got to know how to play the game to some degree. Uh, but let me give listeners and yourselves, if you don't know this, there's a great uh, tool out Luma called Stakeholder Map. You can look it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like the thing from game storming where you put things in four quadrants. It's actually a tool for mapping out an org chart mm-hmm. in context of how relationships work and in context of their needs. So it's almost like Jobs to be done with a visual map, a network of people, really handy for figuring out when you're creating those those stacked value propositions about who needs to be involved, Mm -hmm. what their wants and needs are and how big their influence. I really recommend it. We seem to be doing more of these because we've really seen the value of this tool. Mm -hmm. David, let me ask you a question. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Same question or a different
0: question? Decide. Decide. Okay. Wait, wait. With so, so, um, it's interesting. Um, my experience was a little bit different than yours, as well as Lee's. Uh, I came out of school and I got kind of cut my teeth in the banking and financial services space. So before I knew it, I was setting up platforms, both on the operational side, on the business side, and then also from the technology perspective. And... Without knowing something, talk about like living a life in a silo, you're executing and you're doing things and you're very mindful of cost and people's time and working with people and what needs to be done, what levers or knobs need to be um, focused on to get people to come to the table and execute. Um, and in that type of environment, you get confronted with some very interesting personalities, some good, some bad, and you're there. It's very task oriented. And, um, you know, I was one of these people that I looked at each one of these experiences and I said, you know, if I had to do it over, if I was a sponsor or a decision maker, I would not respond to people that way. Or maybe there was something I witnessed that wasn't, um, I, I thought about it and I constantly think about this. What could have been done better to have a better experience to deliver um, something, uh, execute faster, or to be able to demonstrate results in a more timely manner? And I then, after I got out of the banking and financial services space, I started working in uh, business consulting. And again, the flip side to that is I'm there listening to what clients are focusing on or what they think the business issue is and helping them find, um, achieve a desired outcome in as fast as possible time and do it uh, being very mindful to cost and all of that and still focusing on the banking and financial services space. And um, also kind of having a lot of the similar feelings about the people and how we were working together and just things weren't aligning as well as I was hoping for in the experience that I was kind of witnessing and seeing. And when I talk to people, you know, when we have something and we release something and or hand something over to production in the BAU team, you know, because we were my, my level of engagement was very much from initiation and planning. And even into some of the ideation all the way through to go live. And so I had the opportunity for many years to um, do some really interesting work for some pretty large clients. Um, And uh, it was still a very unfulfilling kind of experience. And around 2016, um, I got an opportunity kind of this is a separate discussion, but um, to read the script. (laughs) Uh, to read the sprint book. And um, literally, I was told that I had to be someplace in a couple of days and have a team ready to conduct a design sprint just kind of on the fly. And, uh, and with that, come up with some very crude wireframes. And um, also, because of the level that I was at within the organization, you know, hopefully, uh, there was a chance for some pull-through uh, revenue coming off the back end of that. Um, and long story short, we were able to mobilize and, um, you know, just maybe it's just the type of person I am. I just kind of took it on my shoulders and tried to get everybody organized and very mindful of what needed to be done when, from a sequencing perspective. And, um, we did it and kind of also part of me not being afraid to fail and just try things. And, um, you know, I think that sincerity and honesty with the customer kind of came through, and. it was a pretty large regional bank here in the States. And um, from that experience, we were able to gain alignment at all different levels of the organization. And they were able to see deliverables, which at the end of the day, from a client perspective, you know, are you being efficient? Are you working smart? Are you being mindful of my resources time? Um, you know, we condensed our first sprint from five days down to two. Uh, the first go. So that's, you would imagine, that's pretty, pretty crazy. Did
3: you have lunch? And and,
0: (laughs) so it's, it's, uh, it was a pretty interesting experience. And from that, I think what I was thinking was that, Oh my gosh, here's a chance for me now to do this. Uh, People come out of these experiences with better feelings generally about what they've accomplished. There's total alignment. And with a little bit more time, maybe on the back end of the sprint, uh, we really could have something closer to a more high fidelity prototype. And so the difference between myself and some of the other people that are out there is I, you know, going back to my management consultancy experience in my um, work in execution, I draw from little pieces of methodologies like more formal traditional. Uh, traditional means of execution or methodology and approaches, Um, whether it's waterfall or agile. And I've been involved in all different aspects of the life cycle and delivery. And so I look at the design sprint as like one little tool or a lightning decision jam that certain elements or components uh, can help me have a discussion with somebody that has budget to spend or wants to talk about their brand or talk about, um, a business issue that they're trying to, to address. And depending on how much time or where the, conference, uh, the the conversation is or how it's taking place or how it's unfolding, I'll introduce different pieces of that to have a conversation with people, to align with people in a short period of time. And now that I'm running my own company for the past two years as Crystal Cove Consulting, um, hopefully getting a chance to come back and have another discussion with people Uh, And to maybe sell some business or maybe get an introduction to somebody within an organization in a different area. Um, Believe it or not, um, I was recently working on selling a piece of strategy for a banking and financial services firm. And I had that I had this expertise and this skill set around facilitation. And they were interested to see how I could help them. You know, A, it was one piece about selling this uh, consulting services engagement, but also um, what can be done within our organization for how, you know, we release products uh, organizationally. Where could we sprinkle some of that uh, thinking and some of those methods and approaches into uh, our existing uh, organizations? So that's the stuff that kind of keeps me going. Um, I'm not so hard and fast on, like, you know, um, it has to be these steps or you have to be. I'm, I'm kind of, I've, Literally, been forced throughout my career to adapt and learn and absorb and take in all this stuff, and then digest it and and apply it. So that's the way I tend to operate and go through the world.
3: That's really interesting. I can relate to that, especially the atomization of the different activities. Yeah, I think that's really important. That you know, you get that level of fluidity with the way you can use the program and understand the why and the value of the tools that you're able to take them out the context that everybody sees them in sprint and start to repurpose them so interestingly enough we're in the middle of a design sprint at the moment with a not-for-profit and mm-hmm. this is the most I, I almost cried at the end of our problem framing. i actually said to the not-for-profit this 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 is why i get up every day being able to actually solve a challenge that, that that will make a real difference. It's real yeah. significant. It's um, a company that helps kids and their families that are suffering with cancer and helps educate them. And what we're doing a design sprint around is the actual program that they take into school. So they have this they have this puppet show and they're using the design sprint to to look at how they can approach that and, and reframe it and bring it in from an educational standpoint and tackle some a little bit more serious issues that they might have shied away from. Now, I know the purists out there will say, Dan, you've got to focus on a design sprint. However, we're very much at that exploration stage of how, well how, what we're going to utilise and what we're going to focus on. So we've done the problem framing, so we know what it is the challenge a broader sense and i'm going to actually um i've got to map out the whole design sprint i don't have to but i want to Mm -hmm. because i don't believe the tools in the design sprint will effectively help the client get to the outcome they need because Mm -hmm. the tools are very much suited more to a product
2: Mm -hmm.
3: not something as expansive as a as a player or program. Now, people will disagree with me, obviously, but I can't see, for instance, how a solution sketch will translate across to, you know, being able to demonstrate a part of a script Mm -hmm. or something like that. It won't have enough information. So at the moment, what's keeping me up at night, I've never had to to approach a design sprint in this way. So at the moment, you can see I'm scratching my head Mm because even talking about it, I'm stressing how... (laughs) We're gonna apply the principles of each stage yeah. or the desired outcomes from each section of the sprint to get where we need. And and that for me, every time I approach a design sprint, especially that first day, I'm up all night the night before because yeah. I know that I know you kinda of say to yourself, the mantra of trust the process. Yeah. But sometimes like, you know, you you you're going in as, as much prep as you've done, which is not as much prep as especially in the financial um, and consulting world that you'd be used to in yeah. regards to having these big, lengthy docs. And that. Yeah. You the, are the still po- kind of going to go in blind. The folks at IDEO refer
1: to it as running towards ambiguity. And they yeah. say, you know, you know, it's moments where I feel most nervous. That's usually where there's the most yeah. gain, And that's, uh, you know, that's... Um, that's uh, the best. Uh, yeah, that's a signal. That's an indicator that something amazing is about to happen
2: yeah
3: but it 's really important as well that the uh, people within your your workshop share that share that attitude because what i've found is as a facilitator and i I, I try and see as many different types of examples of facilitation as I can, and i 've seen really bad examples of facilitation where where they where the facilitator assumes a role as expert and they won 't take on um, questions they, and they stress when things aren't going to their agenda. And yeah. i very much set um, expectations as early as I can because I'm used to wading in the shit. I'm used to the the messiness of design, and I embrace the messiness of design, just like the chaos of life and nature mm-hmm. and all of that. And I and I and I very much be part of people that are part of the team. That it is going to be a journey, and it's not going to be comfortable. Now, John and Dana have a map they refer to that has miserable and happy people on it. Mm-hmm. But um, the map's great, but you can really see the tension in the room when people look at you and they're like, well, what are we doing next? And you're like, well, we've just taken a left turn here. Yeah. I'm, I'm not too sure with what I've spent the last week preparing is going to get us to our outcome. Just let me go and have yeah. a cup of tea and I can help you there. <laughs> but you know, like I, yeah, I think that's really important, I guess, to impart that mindset on the people that you're working with and everybody's sharing that philosophy. Uh,
1: sometimes, sometimes it's referred to as um, team IQ or group IQ when you have a high, uh, high degree of matching between the, you know, the, the people who are speaking. When a couple people try to corner the market on speaking, the group or room IQ goes down and I would uh, align that in an analogous fashion to sprints. How can you raise Sprint IQ? Well, you can raise Sprint IQ by ensuring there's a high degree of mashing and exchange. Everyone uh, has the opportunity, and also you could run a little uh, on-the-spot psychographic research and figure out who are the the quiet ones, and then find a way to draw them in to understand where they are and what they're thinking.
3: An interesting thing that I've discovered in the last six months, and obviously when you discover things you kind of slap your head because you're like oh that was right in front of me um is um, liberating structures and I I didn't really understand liberating structures and I was lucky enough one of the conferences I spoke at some uh, chap out of Sydney uh did a talk on liberating structures and there was a few consultants I knew in the room that were familiar with it and I find that a really interesting uh, methodology and it's something that I'm Trying to figure out how I can bring in, because again that's, a, that's, a, that's almost a mindset for people in the room that they have to accept that you're not going to converge you 're just going to diverge for three hours mm-hmm. and so you've really got to, um, you've really got to pick your audience you know you've or oh, you've got to because a lot of companies that invest in design sprints like that's why I was really curious asking you how IBM have embraced it it is a whole new way of working. They're used to outputs, not necessarily outcomes. They want something that they could show their wife in the shower, which is an iPad app, which might not provide any ROI, might not, you know, and they'll most probably change it when their secretarial, whatever it is, loses their login details and they need a new app or they need it. But we deal in a lot more of a complex, complex area, and I think you said it before, David, in regards to a specific area of, of that value chain which is the problem which is the strategy mm-hmm. and and embracing that problem to be able to help smooth out and de-risk as much as possible and for clients that exchange can sometimes be a little bit difficult because they're so used to having something
2: finished mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Rant finish. Sorry, you get, you'll get me. So I'll get more and more loose. So I gotta get some gin in a minute. <laughs> you really and
1: you and me both. I'm a wine cooler man. You're a Wine cooler man. Hey. Okay. Eh? No,
3: sorry. That was that was it. In my inside. <laughs> so I'm, I'm letting you guys drive the conversation. Is there is there any other kind of things that you'd like to touch on? i like anything. I have ahead? one. Let's go for it
0: so um with all this going on personally and professionally what you know aside from i see the guitars and the music what what else do you like to do in your downtime what do you do i don't
3: i don't have downtime as my friends well my old friends would say that i used to see I, i ride motorbikes uh i love them love them so my dad gave me that gift when he passed, he, uh, he gave that to my brother and myself. He had a Harley Davidson. We pretty much packed up everything. And the only thing we brought across to Australia, apart from a box of photos and my comics, was a Harley Davidson 2008 soft, Heritage Soft tail. And I learned to, uh, that was actually a, a big moment, which I didn't speak about because um, I think well, I'm, I'm turned 40 next month, so I would have been about. 36, 37 when dad passed and bought his motorbike. So I learned how to ride a motorbike <laughs> really <laughs> late on. And I remember before, again, before I started more space, I, I had this crappy little 500cc. It wasn't crappy, but it wasn't like a big thing. And I was working up to the Harley and the, the, the long-term goal was to ride the Harley back. or ride it across country. I had to get it shipped to Melbourne, long story. But I had to ride it back. And I remember I'd only ever really been round the block on the bike or into the city, which was 20 minutes away. And I was going on this big trip with my buddies and they left without me because for some, whatever happened, I, was, I got left behind. And I remember I got to the edge of the city, the edge of Adelaide, and I was ringing the guy's wife and I, and I didn't know where I was going. And beyond the city, it's just motorway. So you can imagine Australia, you've got, it's like Mad Max. You've got cities, then you've got nothing. <laughs> well, you've got bush and stuff. And I remember I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to take this motorbike, which is used to going 60 kilometers an hour on a highway, which is 110 kilometers an hour just with a backpack on it. And it was, that was it. Like once I'd done that, there was nothing I couldn't achieve. Like that was it. So, and that in terms of hobby and joy, that's been like such a great release. Apart from that, downtime's being a dad. Mm-hmm. Every waking, living moment I can be your dad and be part of, be plugged back into my family's life. I'm really, really, um, really, really uh, selfish in respect, or not selfish, I don't think that's the correct word, but you you guys, especially yourself, David, running your own agency. At the weekend, I, I don't want to see anybody else. I just want to spend the time with my boys and my wife and, and just make up for that time that I miss because, you know, you, you pretty much as running your own thing, nobody tells you this. Gary Vaynerchuk's right. It's tough, you know. You don't see <laughs> your mind somewhere else all the time. Yeah. So being able to kind of do your best to put this device away yeah. and yeah, and, and you know, and, and
0: going back and, and I don't mean to take any that much more of your time, but one thing is oh, you know, going back to the the product breakfast club crew and Jake Knapp um, again when I read that, it's almost like you were saying sudden you get confronted by some idea and it smacks you on the head and you're like, Oh, but of course, but like, you know, whether it's the sprint book or make time, like that whole kind of ethos and kind of people that are sharing stories or time hacks around what you can do to free up that. And, you know, some of these people on the journey or starting families, and that's a priority for them. I'm very receptive. They're pitching to the right audience here. And I'm absorbing that and trying to figure out how to do that with my life because I have some of those points that are so valuable to me that I want to make these little hacks or changes so that I can keep doing what I want. And you're absolutely right. I love the Product Breakfast Club episodes where Jonathan's talking about some of the um, decisions that haven't uh, really been positive for the business and some of the Lessons he's learned from those. I, I mean, I, I I hear that and I feel it and I, I appreciate that human side of them communicating that and you sharing you as well sharing those uh, sentiments with us. It's been really nice to spend time talking to you today, Dan.
3: Oh, absolutely, it's absolute, it? absolute pleasure. And just touching on that point, it, it is tough. Uh, you know, this is. I mean, John. John, the guy Jonathan at AJ's, he's he's had that head start, and now he's got a kid, and they're they, they're just going into a really good phase for the business now that he seems to have a handle on it from the outside. But yeah. as you know, two years deep, a two-year-old and a five-year-old. I mean, you, your your wife's in it, and 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 you come home with your 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 stresses is and, and really it's you're living two separate lives. So my wife's in bed at the moment with my three-year-old and my six-year-old because she knows I'm like, obviously in the boys' bed tonight. And I've got to tell you, like, if I, I'm always I, – I, I will never let anything and you've got this on radio, I just don't want anything to get in the way of that will compromise that relationship I have with my family. Like it means more to me than more space. You know, like it's it's so important. And I think it's really and, and I think a lot of people take themselves almost too seriously with the whole hustle thing and the business thing. At the end of the day that 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 ends. That that does end. And you really and it's the, the family and your friends and, and your kids and all of that sort of stuff. That's the stuff that remains and lasts. So I think it's really important that people look up occasionally from the computer and just look more space for light man <laughs> yeah
0: i i you know dan uh thank you very very much for sharing those sentiments i think if there's a couple of of um nuggets there in the in our dialogue today uh, aside from some of the uh suggestions and some of the stories you have about your background and experience and Love of prototyping and just letting it all hang out there and not being afraid to fail or looking at all, let me change that, looking at all experiences and thinking how to pivot and learn from them. Uh, It's been very refreshing to hear you say that. And also, uh, again, you're part of that crowd that's preaching to the right audience. Like, I love hearing somebody that's putting their family first and um, wanting to maximize and get the most utility out of that relationship and spending time with them. I, I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, and let me uh, let me just say one little tidbit here. So I really appreciate that your values led. That's that's the thing that really resonated with me. Uh, yeah. Oh, so thanks, man. That's what will stay with me. But uh, now I just have to ask. This is the last utterance of of me of Lee. Where can people find you?
3: Ah, uh, where can people find me? Well, in my Jeff Bezos uh, garage, you can find me most nights. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you can go to our new website, which I'm so super proud of, morespaceforlight.com.au. So that's M O R E S P A C E F O R L I G H tcomau there's also Instagram, and our Instagram strategy is pretty honest. Which we basically use it as a blog to document we uh, our life and what we're up to. That's the game at more space for light. Uh, LinkedIn uh, and Medium, and on Medium instead of F O R, it's the number four. And on we're prolific on LinkedIn as well. So please connect, say good day. We we we're also on the Slack channels. There's a fabulous community of people on Slack, and that's how we all got to know each other. So, yeah, so keep doing great things and please say good day. Good day. Good <laughs> day. Good <laughs> day. <laughs> thank you. All right, guys. Cut.
0: On behalf of the Experiences of Insight team, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. We hope that it was value added and that you continue to check out our content. Have a nice day.